0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we will look at the accusations of genocide by Israel that have been filed by South Africa at the International Court of Justice and are reminded that the tactics and technology that Israel develops and tests against Palestinians are sold around the world. Sources today include Democracy Now!, The Intercept!, Up first, Making Contact and the Chris Hedges Report, with additional members-only clips from the Chris Hedges Report and the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. But first, I just want to quickly address a concern that seems to be fairly widespread, which is that anti-Semitism is being perceived based not just on what some are saying about Israel, the war, or Jews in general, but also based on what's not being said, primarily from generally left-wing Advocates, activists, and organizations. The accusation is that many on the left haven't prefaced their criticisms of the war or of Israel with enough condemnation of the attack on Israel by Hamas or with enough recognition of the pain being felt by the Jewish diaspora. For me, I can actually sort of understand the oversight and why so many on the left wouldn't have felt the need to condemn the attack by Hamas, and it's not out of a lack of concern for the Jewish community or some deep-seated anti-Semitism. It's just so obvious. It seems like something that should go without saying. Well, that's how it feels from a left-wing, non-Jewish, non-anti-Semitic perspective. But the problem is that there are enough anti-Semitic extremists out there for whom an attack on Israel is not obviously bad, which muddies the water to the point where everyone actually has to state their position on being for or against a war crime massacre. It seems absurd, but that's the current state of play. Anyone speaking up to criticize Israel would be wise to state clearly their condemnations of the attack on Israel, and not just because it's being demanded of them, but because, as Naomi Klein explained in her article a couple of months ago, in Gaza and Israel side with the child over the gun, the Zionist worldview is keen to interpret any perceived lack of support for Israel or Jews more broadly as anti-Semitism which is evidence that their project to build and maintain an ethnostate through overwhelming force is justified. So for those of us who don't support the use of that overwhelming force to maintain their ethnostate, we don't want to do anything that would even accidentally help them support that ideology. And besides, for those of us who genuinely do stand with innocent people against violence and murder being committed against those innocent people, our condemnation of the attack on Israel by Hamas back in October also happens to just be true. And there's really no harm in saying what's true. So it's an absolute tragedy that condemnation of war crimes is something that needs to be clarified. But that is, in fact, the tragic circumstances we are currently living with. So as we get into today's episode, which contains much criticism of Israel, I have no problem starting with a full-throated assurance that we stand against all violence related to this conflict, whether it's those in Israel and Gaza, or those in the US or elsewhere who are being targeted based on anger and hatred inflamed by the current war. And stay tuned to the end, where I'll talk a bit more about the perception of anti-Semitism coming from not just the right, but also from
1: the left. Mouin Rabani, I want to ask you about your new piece from Manda Weiss, headline, The Long History of Zionist Proposals to Ethnically Cleanse the Gaza Strip. Israeli news outlets report that the Israeli prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, reportedly told a group of Israeli lawmakers last week, quote, "...regarding voluntary immigration, this is the direction we're going in," Netanyahu said. Israel's minister of national security, the man who's been convicted of terrorism, uh, Itamar Ben-Gavir, has made similar comments.
2: The solution of encouraging the residents of Gaza to emigrate is one that we must advance. It's the right, just, moral, and human solution. I call on the Prime Minister and the new Foreign Minister, who I congratulate on his appointment. Now is the time to coordinate an emigration project, a project to encourage the residents of Gaza to emigrate to countries of the world. Let's be clear, we have partners around the world whose help we can use. There are people around the world with whom we can advance this idea. Encouraging their immigration will allow us to bring home the residents of the communities near the Gaza border and the residents of the Gash Katif settlements.
1: Those were the words of Israel's Minister of National Security, Tamar Ben-Gavir. On Tuesday, the U.S. State Department issued a statement rejecting Ben-Gavir's comment, as well as those made by Bezalel Smotrich. Meanwhile, The Times of London reports Israeli officials have held secret talks with the Democratic Republic of the Congo and several other countries to take in Palestinians from Gaza. If you can talk about the history of this, um, Muin, and also talk about when they refer to voluntary migration in Gaza, and also talk about Egypt and the pressure that's being brought to bear on Egypt to open its borders to the Palestinians of Gaza.
3: Yes, and and voluntary emigration is now referencing that article you mentioned being marketed as humanitarian emigration. Um, In other words, we're doing these people a favor by ethnically cleansing them. I think the problem here is that many people associate the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians with the Israeli extreme right, with people like um, uh, Ben Gvir, Smotrich, uh, Netanyahu, and so on. But the point. I was seeking um, uh, to make in that uh, article, which is actually um, a lengthy Twitter thread um, that I um, then posted on Mondevice, is, is that ethnic cleansing, or what um, Zionists would call transfer, is intrinsic um, to Zionist and later Israeli policy towards the Palestinians from the very outset. So as early as 1895, Theodore Herzl, the founder of the um, uh, contemporary political Zionist movement wrote that we need to spirit the penniless population across the borders and find employment for it in other lands. If you go to the um, uh, period between the British mandate and the foundation of the state of Israel in 1948, you find that, that the Zionist movement set up a transfer committee um, with very clear terms of reference um, to ensure that refugees who were expelled would not be able to return um, to Palestine to destroy their villages um, and things of that sort. And the Gaza Strip, in fact, with a population that consists for of more than three quarters of Palestinian refugees who were ethnically cleansed in 1948, has since the 1950s been a key target for depopulation by Israel because it doesn't want all these refugees living within sight, so to speak, of their former homes on its borders. And it has produced a number of proposals and initiatives over the years to achieve that goal, including even one in the late 1960s um, to send over uh, some 60,000 Palestinians from the Gaza Strip to Paraguay in return for which the Mossad would discover that it no longer had the resources to hunt Nazi fugitives being sheltered by the Stroessner regime. So, um, my point was really to demonstrate that this is not a recent policy proposal by the, the extreme fringes of the Israeli political spectrum, but has been intrinsic to mainstream Zionism and later Israeli policy from the very outset.
1: You say at the end of your piece, Muin Rabani, as importantly, the 1948 Nakba did not defeat the Palestinians who initiated their struggle from the camps of exile, those in the Gaza Strip most prominently among them. It would take a blinking level of foolishness to assume the expulsion of Palestinians from the Gaza Strip would produce a different outcome. Talk about Netanyahu's goal to de-Hamasify um, uh, Gaza and what exactly that means, and the effect of the killing at this point of over 22,000 Palestinians.
3: Yes, well, that takes me back to the second part of your previous question, which I um, uh, had neglected to answer, which is that at the outset um, of the current war, Israel saw that it had um, uh, unqualified, unconditional Western support, from its U.S. and European sponsors and resurrected um, this long-standing ambition to cleanse the Gaza Strip of Palestinians. And the proposal that, that was put front and center f- literally on October 7th and onwards was to move the population of the Gaza Strip to, um, uh, to the Sinai Desert, to Egypt. And this was an idea that was very enthusiastically embraced by the Secretary, US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. And on his first trip to the region, he actually sought to market this to Washington's Arab allies. And I think, you know, um, he is somewhat of a clueless airhead when it comes to the Middle East. And I think he was expecting to hear from US allies, Arab allies, you know, how can we help you help our Israeli friends? And instead, um, he was met with categorical refusal and rejection for this proposal, first and foremost, uh, by, by Egypt. And the U.S. and European governments later came out with a position that they would oppose forced displacement from the Gaza Strip, leaving open the possibility of what we're seeing now, an Israeli military campaign, a primary objective of which is to make the Gaza Strip unfit for human habitation, and then the encouragement of voluntary or what is now even being called humanitarian um, uh, emigration uh, in order to achieve uh, the ethnic cleansing. And I think um, the genocide that we're now seeing in the Gaza Strip, and this is something, of course, that's going to be adjudicated by the International Court of Justice in The Hague after South Africa recently um uh, made an application under the Genocide Convention. You know, all these things put together, making the Gaza Strip unfit for human habitation. Mouin
1: Rabani, we're going to have to leave it there. I thank you so much for being with us. Middle East analyst, co-editor of Jadalia, will link to your piece, The Long History of Zionist Proposals to Ethnically Cleanse the Gaza Strip. If you can explain why it's South Africa that's bringing this charge and what exactly is the International uh, Court of Justice, where it fits into the world justice system and talk about the charge of genocide.
4: Well, thank you very much for having me on, Amy, my best to your listening audience, Uh, not to toot my own horn here. But uh, I was the first lawyer ever to win anything under the Genocide Convention from the International Court of Justice uh, that goes back to uh, 1921. I single handedly won two world court orders for the Republic of Bosnia Herzegovina against Yugoslavia uh, to cease and desist from committing all acts of genocide. And based on my careful review, Of all the documents so far submitted by the Republic of South Africa, uh, I believe South Africa will win an order against Israel to cease and desist from committing all acts of genocide uh, against the Palestinians. And then we will have an official determination by the International Court of Justice itself the highest uh, legal authority in the united nations system that genocide is going on and under article 1 of the genocide convention all contracting parties 153 states will then be obliged quote to prevent unquote the genocide by israel against the palestinians second when the world court gives this cease and desist order against Israel, the Biden administration will stand condemned under Article 3, Paragraph E of the Genocide Convention that criminalizes complicity in genocide. And clearly we know that the Biden administration has been aiding and abetting Israeli genocide against the Palestinians here for quite some time. Uh, this uh, uh, has also been raised by my friends in the Center for Constitutional Rights uh, and in uh, the National Lawyers Guild in a lawsuit uh, against Biden, Blinken, and uh, and Austin. So I believe uh, we will be able to use uh, the, the world court order. Uh, the, right now, my sources tell me the hearing will be January 11, January 12. Based on my experience with the Bosnians, uh, we can expect an order uh, within a week. I would also say, with respect to the Biden administration, uh, they are currently in violation of the Genocide Convention Implementation Act that makes genocide a crime uh, under United States law. And again, once we uh, South Africa wins this uh, order, Uh, the Biden administration also uh, will stand in violation of the Genocide Convention Implementation Act. So I believe this is where uh, we will be going uh, between now, I would say, and and the end of this month. And it is up to all of us as American citizens to figure out and support uh, uh, what South Africa is doing at the International Court of Justice here. And Francis Boyle, uh, what's the difference between the International Court of Justice and the International Criminal Court, which is already considering allegations of war crimes by both Israel as well as the Palestinian militant groups? Right, Juan. The International Court of Justice was originally established back in uh, 1921, its predecessor, legal predecessor in law. Uh, And that is where I filed the uh, genocide case. I was the first lawyer ever uh, to win two orders in one such case since the World Court was founded in uh, 1921, and it was on the basis of the Genocide Convention. The International uh, Criminal Court is a separate uh, uh, international organization uh, set up in uh, 2000. The problem one is this: back in 2009, after Operation Cast Lead, I advised Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas to accept the jurisdiction of the International Court of the International Criminal Court for Palestine which he did. I regret to report that the International Criminal Court has not done one darn thing to help the Palestinians since 2009. The International Criminal Court has all the blood of the Palestinian people on its hands since 2009. And Juan, that is why Uh, uh, we set up a campaign uh, to to find a state willing to file a lawsuit at the International Court of Justice, uh, the World Court. Uh, The ICC basically uh, operates at the behest of its funders and founders and masters, which is the U.S., the NATO states, the European states, uh, etc., Until their uh, expedited uh, indictment of uh, President Putin as uh, U.S.-NATO lawfare against Russia, the International Criminal Court had not indicted one American, one European, one Brit, one NATO uh, citizen, and one Israeli, uh, and one white person. So uh, we've gone, we have a campaign now. Uh, to support the Republic of South Africa at the International Court of Justice. Uh, And we are asking, we're starting this campaign today, I'm part of a a coalition, Uh, we're starting this campaign today to get members of the Genocide Convention to file declarations of intervention at the world court in support and solidarity uh, with with South Africa uh, against Israel and in support of the uh, Palestinians.
5: I'm watching Al Jazeera and I see Wael wheeled into a hospital. His press vest with blood on the side of it, and him wincing in pain as they have to then cut through clothes and figure out what kind of injury he suffered. And he had been hit when he went to a hospital that had been bombed in an Israeli drone strike. And Israel followed up when when reporters were there by doing another strike. And Wael got hit with shrapnel. And the entire time when he's on that bed, he's telling them, you need to go back for Samar. His longtime cameraman. And he's saying he's critically wounded. He's bleeding out. We need to send an ambulance back to get him. And so an ambulance tries to go and retrieve him, and the Israelis fire on the ambulance and they blockade the road. They will not allow anyone to retrieve the body of the main cameraman for Al Jazeera's bureau chief. And Al Jazeera's response to this then was to put a clock on their screen. And start a timer of how many minutes had gone by that Israel wasn't allowing any medical personnel to go and retrieve their cameraman. And it went on for more than five hours. He struggled to stay alive and then he bled out and died. This is not collateral damage. This is murder. This is murder of a journalist on television. This is beyond anyone's excuses or justifications. This is murdering journalists to silence them, to take the main network whose cameras have been capturing the war crimes and knock them out and knock the people operating those cameras out. And you know what? Let's kill multiple generations of their families. That's the, if I sound angry, it's because I am. I'm furious. I'm furious at what is happening to the people of Gaza and to my colleagues in Gaza. Sharif, it is unconscionable, the silence that we hear from so many. It's deafening in this country and around the world. Yeah, I mean, you know,
6: Jazeera is preparing a legal file to submit to the International Criminal Court over what it calls the assassination of of Semir. Um, And Reporters Without Borders is also intending to file a lawsuit with the ICC against Israel for targeting journalists in Palestine. you know, I don't think, unfortunately, those are going to go anywhere. Uh, and then you're you're watching the journalists who are still alive, like Waileddahdur or Baltaz uh, Aziza, or these journalists who have become the faces through which we sort of understand of what what's happening in Gaza. And I'm, I'm really afraid they're going to be killed. Like I, I don't know how well is alive. Actually, you know. Um, he he was almost almost killed. Uh and he he keeps going out there and he keeps reporting. He's not leaving. And so yeah, I mean this I don't I, I what angers me almost more is that yes, this this response by by Western news outlets. Uh I'm not talking, you know, they are reporting on what's happening increasingly. There is more reporting on it. And they do report on these journalists being killed. But on the editorial like line of it. Um, you know the democracy dies in darkness or whatever stuff like that, or the way they responded to Jamal Khashoggi or the way they responded to Evan Gershkovich. There isn't the same response, and this is so much worse. <laughs> and so, yeah, it lays bare a terrifying bias. Uh, you know, often corporate media outlets and journalists. You know, there's this big debate over you know whether you're allowed to have a political opinion or not or objective journalism. And they often label outlets like Democracy Now, like The Intercept, or independent journalists as activist journalists, as if we have some bias um, that uh, that uh, skews our reporting in, in a bad way. I, I can't see a stronger bias than what is being reflected in their coverage. It's just that their bias is uh, framed by establishment orthodoxy. And it 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 spans the political spectrum of Washington. Basically, it doesn't fall outside of that. Anything that falls outside of that is radical. But they're the ones who are, have a radical agenda. I think that is if you're just a, an honest journalist, then then this should you should be outraged, and this should be you know the number one story that you're covering, and. I've spoken about this before with you, Jeremy, on on Intercepted about the coverage of places like the New York Times um, that I'm still somehow shocked by. I'm still somehow shocked. It's gotten better because of the scale of the killing and the length of it. But, but, but especially in the beginning, it was just outrageous, outrageous reporting that, on a very basic level of journalism, was really handing uh, a microphone to Israel and kind of publishing their narrative without challenging it uh so you know that's a terrible bias and then yeah what is going to happen to Palestine what's going to happen to Gaza they have made it unlivable even if the bombing stopped today if there's a ceasefire at this moment what's going to happen the people have nothing to go back to there is no homes left They've, they've destroyed it there is no water there's no sanitation They've bombed bakeries. They've bombed wheat mills. Um, I don't know what the plan is. I don't understand, and I don't, frankly, I don't think that there is one, um, a, a coherent one. You know, there, there's, you know, Musab, the, the poet that uh, that I just heard talk. He said, "You're not allowed to stay in Gaza. They're driving us out, but you're not allowed to leave it either." And he's like, I don't know what they want. I don't think they know themselves what they're doing. They're just killing and destroying. And I think that is kind of right. Um, Northern Gaza has been turned into this hollow shell. Um, It's an uninhabitable moonscape with few residents left. Uh, There's bodies, thousands of bodies or hundreds of bodies buried under the rubble. Southern Gaza uh, is a humanitarian catastrophe with hundreds of thousands of Palestinians crammed into this even smaller space of the Strip. Displaced in schools and tents and shelters, and there's a relentless bombardment uh, and assault there as well. And can you think of any twin image that is more illustrative of colonial expansion than that? A destroyed and empty geography alongside an overcrowded ocean of displaced suffering. Um, and one can only assume that you know this mass slaughter and destruction that Israel has wrought in Gaza suggests an intention to make the territory uninhabitable for the 2.2 or 2.3 million Palestinians who live there and to push for expulsion via a military-engineered humanitarian catastrophe.
7: In Gaza, access to food, sanitation and clean water is scarce as the war between Hamas and Israel rages on.
8: The World Health Organization warns disease may eventually kill more people than actual combat if the health system is not fixed.
7: We've got NPR's Ari Daniel here to walk us through what's being done to try to stay ahead of an outbreak. Uh, Ari, first off, can you give us a snapshot of infectious disease in Gaza right now? What's it looking like?
9: Sure, it's bad, and it may well get worse. The WHO says rates are, quote, soaring. Here's one example, a more than 100,000 cases of diarrhea with rates among children that are 25 times higher than before the war. Our producer, Anas Baba, spoke to pediatrician Tahrir al-Sheikh, who's seen some brutal cases of diarrhea.
1: I treated a four-month-old baby who had 20 bowel movements in a day along with a
9: torrent of respiratory diseases.
1: I've had cases that didn't respond to any treatment.
9: The WHO says there are also numerous cases of meningitis, rashes, scabies, lice, and chickenpox.
7: Wow. Now, and we hear how hard it is to treat people who are hurt and sick right now. Ari, what combination of conditions created the situation where an infectious disease disaster could really be right around the corner? Well,
9: Gaza's health infrastructure has really crumbled amidst Israel's bombardment and ground offensive. The WHO says more than half of Gaza's hospitals are no longer functioning, and that's because Israel has accused Hamas of harboring fighters and weapons in and around those hospitals and under them in tunnels, putting them in the line of fire. Plus, the conditions inside Gaza are a perfect storm for the spread of infectious disease. There is intense overcrowding, colder winter weather, and a lack of clean water, sanitation, and proper nutrition, which are services that are difficult to secure under Israel's near total siege of Gaza. Here's Amber on Deputy program manager for Doctors Without Borders in the Palestinian territories.
10: It's just sort of a, a cauldron of possibility of infectious disease. This really just is an infectious disaster in waiting.
7: And that brings us back, I suppose, to the World Health Organization's prediction that disease could endanger more lives in military action.
9: Exactly. And it's why global health groups are racing to ramp up disease surveillance efforts.
7: What did that look like? in Gaza before the war? Pretty good, actually, despite
9: the Israeli blockade. But the war has compromised all that. Here's Dr. Asheikh again.
1: We used to culture bacteria in Gaza, prescribe medication based on the results. Now we can't do cultures or anything, and the infections are spreading.
7: So then what are public health professionals doing to try and catch an outbreak before it even takes off? Well, a WHO official recently
9: traveled to Gaza with rapid tests for hepatitis and cholera. They want to resuscitate one or two of the local laboratories that used to do pathogen screening. Negotiations are also underway to bring a mobile lab into Gaza or ferry specimens out to Egypt for testing. For now, Rick Brennan, a regional emergency director with the WHO, told me it's fortunate that terrible diseases like measles or cholera haven't yet surfaced. To be honest, I'm grateful that we've got to this point. We've got increased rates, but we haven't had a deadly outbreak yet. Whether that good fortune lasts isn't certain, but early detection will be critical to keeping potential disease outbreaks contained before they lead to further suffering.
8: We're going to zoom out from the situation on the ground in Gaza to looking at the various actors involved in these atrocities. So I sat down with Nora to hear about the weapons that Israel is using in attacks like on Al-Shifa Hospital and where they're coming from. Um, I kind of want us to take a closer look at, at Israel's military industry. So Israel is one of the world's most militarized countries, as well as a major weapons um, supplier internationally. Um, I'm wondering, could you maybe sketch out for us a broad picture of what Israel's military industrial complex um, looks like and how it enables this current genocide and the ongoing occupation?
11: Israel is a settler colonial rampart of Western imperial interests in the Middle East. Israel is not only a leading arms manufacturer that sells its, uh, so-called battle, battle tested or field tested weaponry to other states around the world. Of course, the research and development wing of the, of these weapons are the people in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, uh, specifically Gaza over the last, you know, 20 years. Tons of brand new weaponry are tested on Palestinians and then sold in the world market by Israeli arms companies. Um, But it's also a leader in surveillance technology and biotech, you know, weaponry and and technology. Um, So Israel is also a leading um, supplier of spyware for governments uh, and bad faith actors around the world. And, of course, it is all supported and financed by the U.S. The U.S. has, you know, I mean, it it finances the Israeli military up to, you know, three, sometimes six billion dollars a year. Um, A lot of that is also um, through weapons contracts. The U.S. also uses Israel as a weapons storage depot um, where it can you know, store weapons for U.S.-led uh, imperial interests in the region. I mean, it is so expansive and it is so insidious. Um, Israel's weapons industry is its biggest export. I mean, where do we start? I, you know, Israel uh, uses drones, surveillance drones on Palestinians right now as we speak. These same surveillance drones are the ones that the U.S. Department of Homeland Security has purchased uh, to patrol the border wall between the U.S. and Mexico. You know, there, there are these weapons, uh, something that's called the the ninja missile, I believe, and it is designed to, upon impact, kind of uh, like fan out these blades and they're designed to rip flesh just into pieces. Like, I'm just imagining people in business suits, sitting around boardrooms, coming up with designs for these kinds of weaponry. I just, I have a lot of just fear for humanity that this is what our minds can come up with. Um, and that these weapons are, are being used against mostly children in the Gaza Strip is just... I I mean, there are no words. I I keep, I keep losing words for for this horror that we're seeing. I feel like we need to come up with a brand new vocabulary.
8: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, when you were you were talking about this um, vision that you had of people in boardrooms, I was also thinking about just like kind of the role of global defense corporations as well who are who are not only like enabling the genocidal war but also profiting from it um you know can you talk about like some of the other players who who are profiting actively now
11: yeah i mean you know the 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 big three you know in the u.s which is raytheon lockheed martin and boeing um which design uh and manufacture not just missiles, but also, you know, the warplanes, um, the fighter jets, drones. Um, we're talking about Elbit Systems, which is an Israeli company, but which has headquarters in the UK and uh, facilities in the US, especially on the East Coast. I mean, it it is an enormous industry, I think, and it's so ingrained with um you know western capitalism i mean they're just they're just normal factories producing normal products for normal states to be used in normal situations that's how that's how it's marketed you know boeing oh they make airplanes as well you know we all fly passenger jets boeing also makes weapons that kill people um raytheon is is one of the biggest weapons manufacturers on the planet uh, Lockheed Martin as well. And and it's just, these players are always excited when there's, uh, you know, a global conflict or a war or a genocide happening because their stocks go up, because their products become more, more valuable. Um, and we're seeing now, we're seeing these uh, stock prices rise. We're seeing economic experts talking about um you know, how great this war on Gaza is for these weapons manufacturers, how, how it's all just kind of normalized in, into this sort of like natural, you know, outcome of of capitalism and, and Western interests. Um, I mean, it's just it's devastating um, and it should it should not be normal. It should be, you know, these weapons manufacturers are complicit in war crimes and crimes against humanity. Um, and when we look at what's happening in Gaza, when when children, and fathers and mothers and grandparents um, are be- and, sh- and doctors and journalists and school teachers are being shredded to bits by Western weapons, we have to figure out ways to stop it. There are activists... All over the country, uh, all over the world, but if we're focusing in on the U.S., there are activists who every day since the start of this genocide in Gaza have been engaged in incredible direct actions and protests to stop these weapons manufacturers and these war criminal, you know, conspirators, um, from profiting. And, um, that is, is incredibly necessary people are getting arrested people are locking themselves down at the gates of of boeing and of elbeat uh facilities and stopping the the you know the weapon shipments on on cargo ships uh just just like you know at the port of oakland a couple of weeks ago and then 2 days later at the the port of tacoma washington it's time for people to not see this as business as usual the majority of people in this country do not want this genocide to happen, and it is incumbent upon us to do whatever we can to stand in the way of these war crimes. Um, I mean, we're seeing these marches nearly every weekend, just here in in California, you know, and and you know, every day around the country, uh, where thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are gathering to you know, add their voice to this growing, exponentially growing choir saying not in our name, stop the bombing, stop this genocide and uh, warning the Biden administration that they're going to be voted out.
10: Let's talk about privatization. Uh, You talk about the neoliberalism that transformed Israel, which was a socialist state. Uh, Major state-owned enterprises uh, were uh, sold off, uh, privatized, uh, especially in the 1990s. Israel has very high uh, income inequality. Uh, Poverty rate, uh, 23% in Israel, 36% for the Arab population. Uh, And you write, many Palestinians are unaware At how the occupation has been privatized, because it makes no difference, if a state officer or a private individual harasses or humiliates them, you go on to write many checkpoints through which Palestinians are forced to travel to access their schools, workplaces, or Israel, if they are fortunate enough to get one of the few work permits handed out by the Jewish state, use facial recognition technology and biometric details to document their every move. Uh, But these are private companies. So explain that, what's happened to how essentially private for-profit firms are managing the occupation. It's worth saying, obviously, that Israel
12: was a self-described socialist country, but socialist country for Jews. I mean, that's obvious to say that. but Yes, that's (laughs) right. And also, yes, and clearly, I mean, as some older you know, viewers will be aware. You know, the it's amazing to think now that so much of the global left was enamoured with Israel for the first, really, twenty years of its existence. Anyway, that was a bit of blindness that we can talk about some other time. But anyway, yeah. Look, Netanyahu was a key p- factor in this. That yes, Israel had a quasi-socialist uh, background. In the last twenty or so years, there's been a shift, to not just li- neoliberal policies within Israel itself, but also outsourcing the occupation. And in some ways, it sort of, um, goes along with the massive expansion of settlements. You now have roughly three quarters of a million Jewish settlers living in occupied territory, the West Bank and East Jerusalem. And a lot of the guards or security officers that are working on both settler checkpoints, but also Israeli checkpoints are run by private companies. And I've spent some, I spent, I lived in East Jerusalem between 2016 and 2020 and been visiting there for close to 20 years so I spent a lot of time looking into these kinds of issues and it's worth saying that as I say in the book yes it's been outsourced and the accountability was zero even if an Israeli soldier commits an abuse let alone if a private interest does and it's important also to say that yes a lot of these companies are Israeli but many of them in fact that are doing this are also foreign and international. And that's relevant because some viewers will remember the last years. the UN had tried for years to release this list of global companies and Israeli companies that were directly complicit in the occupation and therefore they should be boycotted, essentially. They released the list a number of years ago. It caused a big scandal in some circles. About 20 or so of those companies then removed themselves from being involved in managing the occupation, so to speak, but there are still, I think, around 100 companies, Israeli and foreign, that are directly involved day-to-day in so-called managing the occupation. That, to me, is is not just illegal and immoral, but also right for a kind of boycott campaign, which I suspect will increase in the coming years after what we've
10: seen the last six weeks. Can you talk about any vision? I think it's changed its name to OSTO uh, and then uh, UNIT. Uh, 8200. So any vision, which is that has changed its name is a facial
12: recognition company, an Israeli company that was testing this at Israeli checkpoints. So what that means is that when Palestinians want to say move around the West Bank, if they want to potentially go from the West Bank into Israel proper, they have to have their details checked, their irises often checked now. And they were gathering all this information. We don't exactly know where that information was going, but clearly it was going into Israel, a massive database that they were using to gather personal data on pretty much every single Palestinian occupied territories. Those tools are then marketed globally. They have appeared in huge amounts of infrastructure from airports to other places around the world. And when those companies promote it, whether any vision uses the term battle-tested, I'm not sure, but they are saying it's been tested in Palestine successfully, so-called successfully. And that does tie into Unit 8200, which is, as I said, Israel's NSA. It is the body that is gathering intelligence on Israeli and on Palestinians. And increasingly, I should say, there is a lot of evidence that increasingly the occupation is coming home that a lot of Israeli Jews who for years believe that this was just happening to Palestinians down the road are increasingly being surveilled themselves. And I'm not just talking about since October 7, although particularly since then, that there is a move within Israel increasingly a criminalising dissent entirely, whether it's by Arabs or Jews. But Unit 8200 has become this kind of quite infamous funnel of people who work in the military for years developing all these tools and methods to surveil Palestinians which they then take to the private sector to develop various forms of repression, which they can then sell around the world. And by maintaining those close ties, that's how it goes to my point earlier on The NSO group was essentially an arm of the state. Many of these companies, these surveillance companies, repressive tools, biometric companies operating in the occupied territories or in Gaza, are then used by Israel as a key selling point to make new friends, so to speak. It's a transactional friendship, transactional relationship. And it's why, as I really think, I think there's more and more that the Israeli arms industry really is is an insurance policy. It's an insurance policy because, yes, there are some countries that oppose what Israel's doing, not many, not enough. But even the countries that publicly do oppose what Israel is doing many of them are still buying Israeli repressive technology. I mean, Mexico is one example amongst many. So often I think words matter, sure. What a government or, you know, prime minister or president says, it's not irrelevant, yeah, sure. But what matters more is what you're doing, what you're buying, what you're deploying yourself in your own country. So when you have 130, 140 nations in the world that have bought some form in the last decades of Israeli defense technology, drones, missiles, spyware, whatever it may be, that's what matters. And I think those Israel believes, probably with justification, those nations, at least for now, are unlikely to turn on Israel while they're so reliant on those tools of repression.
13: Palestinians, we understand our movement as part of the movement against settler colonialism. We understand our movement as the struggle against Israeli apartheid. We understand that struggle as against ethno supremacy, white supremacy, religious supremacy, fascism, and right-wing authoritarianism. And we understand that all these systems of oppression are used to exploit and dominate indigenous people and land from manifest destiny to the Zionist colonization of Palestine to fascist coups across the global South. And as such, what we're witnessing in Palestine is part of a 75-year struggle against colonial violence, 16 years of a brutal and inhumane siege on Gaza, most importantly, backed by and made possible by the economic, military, and political support of the U.S. government. So from an abolitionist perspective, we need to unpack the violence the system uses to exercise state repression and inhibit people of color and poor people from their from their own self-determination. I won't get into all the specifics of what Israel has done, but we know that they have oppressed us as Palestinians for 75 years. My father is older than the state of Israel, and they imagine that the old, which would die, and the young would forget. And what we're seeing in the streets today and what we're seeing around the world is evidence that that is absolutely not true. And today, as anti-racists, as feminists, as abolitionists, we must recommit ourselves to the critical work of defunding genocide, defunding war, defunding apartheid and militarism and funding people's health, well-being and freedom. Abolition, abolition, I believe, forces us to ask the critical question, right, of what are the economic and political priorities of this U.S. government? And what do we need to do to shift those priorities? Our immediate strategy as a movement is quite clear. It's plain and simple. We must do everything in our power to stop this war on Palestinians in Gaza and demand an immediate ceasefire. Without that, we cannot build or strengthen our movement, let alone any social justice movement. We, when I say we, it's the big we, right? It's all people of conscience. We're lucky today today to have our anti-Zionist Jewish allies like Jewish Voice for Peace taking bold and necessary steps to engage in mass civil disobedience against this war. We are fortunate to have other social justice movement partners joining us in that struggle, but right now we need everyone. The call for an end to this war should be echoed by anybody who values human life, by all freedom-loving people. And we know that we will not stop until there is a ceasefire. And once there is, we will not stop until there is no more siege on Gaza. And once that happens, we will not stop until we end apartheid and Palestine is free and myself and my six-month-old child have the right to return. What we have seen in the past and in the current that has had an impact are the mass direct actions, what we witnessed at Grand Central Station with our Jewish allies, Shutting down federal buildings, shutting down freeways, disrupting war mongers when they speak, as we saw with Blinken, making it so that nobody can turn a blind eye to this. And let's continue to do that, to do everything we can to build and shift power. But while we work to demand an end to this war, we are also drawing on our historical memory of 9/ 11, and working to defend and protect our communities right here in the United States against the growing rise of anti-Palestinian Islamophobic racism and violence facilitated by the systems of policing, imprisonment and surveillance. We're seeing the criminalization of any Palestine solidarity prior to this war on Gaza. In 37 states, it was elite, it's illegal to engage in boycott, divest and sanctions against Israel. We are seeing the emboldenment of political repression. More laws attempted to be passed right here, including in California, where I live, to make Palestine solidarity on college campuses illegal. We're seeing surveillance increase with the targeting of Palestinian homes, communities and faith institutions. Superintendents and school districts, Democratic Club parties, elected statements are fanning the flames of racism, calling for people to, quote unquote, stand with Israel in lane terms, stand with genocide and war. And just as the struggle we know for a free Palestine emboldens those repressive systems of the prison industrial complex, Palestine solidarity also expands the terrain for social justice movements to unpack and challenge militarism, policing, surveillance in the spirit of solidarity and collective liberation. So while we're watching the United States government And so many of its Western allies clamor to beat the drums of war and annihilation of my people. We have a duty for those of us in the belly of this beast to stop this war, to defund this war, to defund apartheid. And we have learned from the movement against apartheid South Africa what has worked. As such, we call on everybody to boycott Israel. We call on institutions to divest from Israel. We call on the U.S. government to sanction Israel and end its billions in military aid. We call on our communities and allies to stop the annihilation of Palestinians by demanding an end to the siege on Gaza, the end to the occupation, freedom for all of our political prisoners, and an end to U.S. aid to apartheid Israel. But despite the egregious violence our people are facing today, I also want to remind us of the gains we've made. Right. Because we have made gains over the last few decades where the question of Palestine is central to any social justice movement. Today, there's consensus across progressive communities that an attack on Palestine is an attack on all movements for justice. And fundamentally, we also know it's never really just been about Palestine. It's about what the movement for Palestinian liberation represents the ongoing anti-colonial struggle against U.S. imperialism, racial capitalism, global militarism, the decolonial liberatory potential of all our movements, and the development of an implementation of a people-centered, multiracial democracy. The revolutionary Palestinian Arab tradition I come out of is indebted to and shaped by international feminists and abolitionists such as Angela Davis. Through that lens, we know what is made possible by understanding our struggles as linked, understanding the necessity of solidarity and internationalism, bringing it back to the radical understanding of intersectionality, the Kambahi River Collective. We understand solidarity is is not just simply a moral imperative. It's a necessary way of life for all those committed to changing the course of history and transforming society and ourselves in the process. The embodiment of that tradition is why and how I and AROC understand the struggle to abolish apartheid, the struggle to abolish Zionism, the struggle to abolish fascism in our homeland as one and the same with the international struggle to free all political prisoners for economic and political democracy, for education and health care, for right relations to the land, for social justice, for gender justice, for climate justice. Shaped in the interest of working people. Right. So with the rebellions we've seen in the United States in recent years, we've also seen the unmasking of violence, of the violence of racial capitalism and policing. The whole world is questioning the foundation of this system, the historical exploitation and dispossession of black and indigenous people. And just as the system finds its origins in the exploitation of Black and Indigenous communities, it's also true that it finds its undoing in the centuries-long emancipatory visions of these same people. Freedom for the Indigenous people of Palestine is part and parcel of that emancipatory vision.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now! describing Israel's strategy of voluntary migration. Democracy Now! also explained the process ahead at the International Court of Justice. The Intercept discussed journalists being killed in Gaza. Up First looked at the rise of infectious disease amid limited medical resources. Making Contact focused on the export of Israeli military technology around the world. The Chris Hedges report looked at the security apparatus in Israel and how it's sold abroad, and Making Contact featured a monologue laying out an anti-colonial vision of freedom. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from the Chris Hedges report highlighting the inclusive marketing of the IDF.
12: There's been a real push by the IDF, the Israeli army, to show how gender-friendly they are, how in fact gay-friendly they are, how trans-friendly they are. This is such a key part of Israeli messaging.
0: And at the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, discussed Christian Zionism in the U.S.
2: Christian Zionism as an evangelical fundamentalist movement really elevates the modern state of Israel, and it equates biblical Israel with the modern state. That in itself is a heretical teaching
0: to hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com/support or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. For more on our take of the war in Gaza and Israel more broadly. We've done several episodes recently that are worth checking out. Number 1584 covers the political turmoil in Israel before the attack by Hamas in October. 1589 gives first impressions just 10 days out from the Hamas attack. 1591 looks at both traditional and social media in relation to the war, and 1592 looked deeper into some of the underlying causes of the conflict. So check those out. Again, those are episodes 15, 84, 89, 91, and 92. Now to wrap up, I wanted to share a couple of contrasting points that I came across while reading some of the latest on the reverberations of this war currently being felt here at home. There was an article in Politico titled, California Lawmakers Pull the Fire Alarm on Antisemitism. And it features an interview with a California assembly person who is also the co-chair of the legislative Jewish caucus, expressing their concern about growing anti-Semitism that seems to be coming from both the left and right, in their perception. The quote that really stuck out is this one. He says, quote, We now find ourselves in this incredible situation where we are trapped between the far right and the far left. Those two groups hate each other see each other as a threat to everything they love and believe is holy. And the one thing they seem to agree on is that Jews are uniquely evil and that we are responsible for the world's problems. Continuing, those are two segments of our society in the United States and around the world that are growing, and if one of the core ideologies that's made its way into both of those groups is that Jews are bad and Jews are oppressors and Jews are evil, that's a very problematic and scary thing for us, given how we've seen this unfold in history over and over again, end quote. Now, to me, that sounds practically unhinged. I mean the description of antisemitism as displayed quite frequently from the far right makes perfect sense the sort of conspiratorial anti-jewish vision of a cabal of Jews being evil and you know causing all the problems in the world that's not a fantasy that that's not something that doesn't exist in the real world it does but I basically never hear about it coming from anyone who claims to be on the left That seems to be almost exclusively a far-right, conspiratorial mindset. Now, I'm sure that there are some outlier examples that could be pointed to, but I mostly think that this kind of thinking stems from what I discussed at the top of the show, that anyone who didn't do a good enough job of condemning the Hamas attack gets suddenly categorized as anti-Semitic in the minds of people like this California politician that is basically equivalent to white supremacists. But for another perspective on this, let's turn to another recent article. This one is from The Guardian, titled Anti-Defamation League Staff Decry Dishonest Campaign Against Israel Critics. So the Anti-Defamation League has made a name for itself over the last more than 100 years as experts in extremism by tracking and cataloging anti-Semitism, and extremist violence. However, they're not just a hands-off data organization. They also advocate quite explicitly for the state of Israel and for the ideology of Zionism. In 2022, the ADL CEO, Jonathan Greenblatt, said that, quote, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. And he singled out Students for Justice in Palestine and Jewish Voice for Peace as groups that, quote, epitomize the radical left, the photo inverse of the extreme right that ADL Long has tracked, end quote. So again, this is taking an extreme position that I would argue defines anti-Semitism so broadly as to be basically absurd and which has the effect of stoking far more fear of anti-Semitism from the left than could possibly be justified. It sort of conjures the idea that, you know, before we thought the only danger was coming from the far right, but now we see that the danger has basically doubled and that it's coming from both sides. As though left-wing peace activists who criticize the policies of the government of Israel are equally dangerous to Jewish people as those primarily on the right, who hold conspiratorial, anti-Semitic views. But the good news, being focused on in this article, is that there seems to be a healthy amount of dissent within the ADL, which I had not heard before. Continuing from the article just after that quote from the CEO, quote, his remarks didn't only upset grassroots activists and Jewish groups critical of Israeli policy. It also set off a firestorm within the Jewish advocacy group. Some members of ADL's staff were outraged by the dissonance between Greenblatt's comments and the organization's own research, as evidenced by internal messages viewed by The Guardian. Quote, There is no comparison between white supremacists and insurrectionists and those who espouse anti-israel rhetoric and to suggest otherwise is both intellectually dishonest and damaging to our reputation as experts in extremism a senior manager at ADL's Center on Extremism wrote in a slack channel to over 550 colleagues others chimed in agreeing quote the aforementioned false equivalencies and the both-sidesism are incompatible with the data I've seen, a long-term extremism researcher said. End quote. So I was really glad to hear that and hold out hope that this perspective, one based on the evidence and data about where the actual dangers of anti-Semitism stem from, will be the one that prevails in the long run. But we can't depend on data alone. This is a mistake that the left makes often. How people feel and how they perceive a situation is almost always more relevant than what the data says. And the Jewish community feels attacked right now, obviously. The California Assemblyman, when asked what he wanted support to look like, ended up just talking about how it simply felt bad when critics of Israel didn't also acknowledge the pain and suffering that's going on in the Jewish community. Now, for some, like the CEO of ADL, any criticism of Israel will be seen and felt as anti-Semitism. And I'm happy to have that debate, because I think that's nonsense. But for others, it seems like they feel attacked and just don't want to also feel abandoned at the same time. So, if acknowledging the pain and suffering actually helps people feel less threatened and helps sap the energy from the more extreme and dangerous instincts within the Zionist ideology, then if you're criticizing Israel from the left without making your holistic perspectives clear about all of the violence on all sides, then I think you're doing your left-wing politics wrong. That is going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in. I would love to hear your thoughts or questions about this or anything else. You can leave us a voicemail or send us a text to 202-999-3991 or simply email me to j at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and Ben, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who already support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships. You can join them by signing up today at bestoftheleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good and often funny bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content, no ads, and chapter markers in all of our regular episodes, all through your regular podcast player. You'll find that link in the show notes, along with a link to join our Discord community, where you can also continue the discussion.